0: Welcome to statewide reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Ahead this hour, the job of climatologists and meteorologists is to explain, but not everyone wants to hear what they have to say, especially when they mention climate change. Some have even faced threats. We'll hear more. When the pandemic hit, the University of Illinois got to work and developed a saliva-based test, but now the company that grew from that is closing. What's happened to the shopping mall once it was the place to be for retailers? Now many malls are struggling and looking for new ways to stay relevant. We'll talk more about it. A Chicago woman tells us about student loan debt, how it affected her and what she's done about it. And JFK's assassination in Dallas 60 years ago. Everyone knows what happened. But a year earlier, an eerily similar circumstance occurred in Springfield. Those stories and more on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, talking about climate change can be a tough job. That's especially true in places where audiences may be more skeptical of climate science. Climatologists and meteorologists across the Midwest and Great Plains say they're facing stress, burnout, and sometimes even death threats. For Harvest Public Media, Elizabeth Rimbert brings us the story.
1: Back in 2021, Chris Gloninger was excited to start his new job as chief meteorologist at KCCI, a TV station in Iowa. He was moving from Boston to Des Moines to connect the dots between daily weather and climate change trends. It's something he'd honed over more than 15 years as a TV meteorologist, like when he covered flooding in
2: New Hampshire. What's causing it? It's a combination of rising sea level and astronomically high tide.
1: In Iowa, it got some viewers grumbling.
2: It was, you know, I don't need to hear your liberal conspiracy theories on on our air. Take the politics out of your forecast.
1: That wasn't surprising. He expected pushback.
2: I just didn't expect
3: the magnitude at the time and how quickly it went off the rails.
1: In summer 2022, Gloninger started receiving a steady flow of harassing emails. In one, the sender asked for his address and said, we conservative Iowans would like to give you an Iowan welcome you will never forget. Glonginer had security but says he still felt unsafe.
4: You don't, you never know what hill
2: somebody is willing to die on.
1: Eventually, it became too much. After two years in Iowa, Gloninger moved back to the East Coast to be closer to his family and take a consulting job focused on climate solutions. While resistant voices can be loud, 90 percent of Americans are still open to learning about climate change, according to Ed Maybach with the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. Maybach says research shows people value hearing about climate change from trusted sources like meteorologists and climatologists.
5: Even in very conservative communities across America, their audiences have responded with overwhelming appreciation for the effort they're making.
1: But skepticism and hostility from the minority can be a challenge for people on the front lines of climate communication, especially in conservative states. I talked to climatologists and meteorologists in seven states who have encountered strong resistance like Melissa Widhelm, who spent years presenting the science to communities in Indiana.
6: Every time you went out, you just
3: weren't sure what you were going to get. You know, you always went in, having to mentally prepare yourself that somebody could be there to cause trouble or not
1: engage in a civilized way. In Nebraska, that became too exhausting for Martha Durr, who recently resigned as the state's climatologist. She says she didn't feel she had anything left to give the job.
6: I went to school to become a scientist, and what I found myself doing the most of in this role is almost being a therapist and helping people through climate change.
1: For nearly eight years, she tried to be empathetic and meet people where they were when it came to climate change. She pointed out local impacts that people could see in their own backyards. It was discouraging when her careful consideration ran into a wall of resistance.
6: It gets tiring trying to convince people that science is real, and this is a fact. It isn't isn't a point of debate. If you want to do that, you, you can go talk to somebody else, but I'm not at a place where I want to keep doing this.
1: When it gets tough for Melissa Widhelm, she thinks it might be easier in a more liberal state. But then she tells herself. There is nowhere else that is more important to do
3: this work than right here in Indiana. Because otherwise it would not be talked about at all.
1: In Iowa, Chris Glaniner saw how much people appreciated his work. After he talked about the harassment on air, he received hundreds of messages from grateful viewers, which he printed out into a thick manuscript.
2: You were very honest in discussing climate change, which I appreciated. So sorry that you were harassed by the extremists out there. Fort Dodge, Iowa.
1: He hopes someone else will help Iowa viewers understand climate change. I'm Elizabeth Rembert, Harvest Public Media.
0: Drought, deadly dust storms and torrential downpours, Illinois farmers have dealt with all types of extreme weather this year. Climate change is severely disrupting the state's $19 billion per year agriculture industry, but the Illinois Farm Bureau is trying to help. They hosted meetings with farmers throughout the summer to encourage conservation practices. Jim Meadows visited one such event in Monticello. Jared
5: Gregg isn't a total stranger to conservation farming. Gregg farms near Cerro Gordo in Piatt County, about 15 miles east of Decatur. He says neighbors took note when his grandfather started using no-till farming in the 1980s. It's a way to prevent soil erosion by planting crops right on top of the previous one without turning up the soil.
0: There was definitely some comments. It was a head-turning type deal, but you know, honestly it was a, a good move. Greg
5: is planning more moves too, like using cover crops. After harvest this fall, Greg will plant additional non-harvest crops to cut down on erosion and keep the soil healthy. And it's just kind of a small set, something to start with, to me, these cover crops are very new. I think they have a place, but the adaptation of them, it will take time for farmers to latch onto. Greg is exactly the kind of conservation-curious farmer the Illinois Farm Bureau was hoping to reach with these events, especially as erosion control of the Midwest becomes more difficult. State climatologist Trent Ford says changing weather patterns are resulting in the same or greater amount of rain falling in shorter, more intense rainstorms. He told the farmers meeting in Monticello that the result is rain falling faster than the soil can absorb it. Ford says that's why Illinois farmland can still experience drought conditions despite heavy rainstorms.
0: So, for example, in some places they get one to two, three inches of rain an hour. The soil is not going to take in one, two, three inches of rain in that short period of time. It's going to take in a fraction of that. The rest is going to run off.
5: And that runoff can create additional problems for our waterways. Near Monticello, the city of Decatur is trying to keep eroded soil and farm chemicals from entering its reservoir, an artificial lake on the Sangamon River called Lake Decatur. The city paid $92 million and spent five years dredging farm sediment out of the lake, and it pays $200,000 every year to remove farm chemicals from the water supply. Decatur is using a mix of local funds and USDA grant money to offer payments and technical assistance to farmers in the Lake Decatur watershed. Farmers like Jake Leeb. Leeb says he and his brother use both no-till and cover crop methods on their family farm near Monticello.
0: Yeah, I mean right across the road we'd be looking at a bean field that was planted into cereal rye and uh, there's not a weed in it. it. Very healthy looking beans. It was no-tilled and it looks just as good if not better than a field right across the road from it that was conventional tillage.
5: Lieb says he concentrates the soil conservation techniques on his hilliest farmland where the danger of soil erosion is greatest. And he thinks the use of conservation farming techniques will continue to grow as a new generation of farmers takes over.
0: As the older generation kind of turns it over to the younger generation, I think More guys are going to be open to to trying new things and looking at at alternatives to what they used to do in the old days, quote-unquote. I mean, if everybody still used a moldboard plow, we wouldn't have any soil left, you know. So uh, change can be good.
5: And it's that good change that Lieb hopes will prevent farmland and chemicals from washing away. I'm Jim Meadows.
0: Gun owners in Illinois have just a month left to register their semi-automatic firearms and high-capacity magazines that are restricted under a new state law. But as Mawa Iqbal reports, relatively few gun owners have complied thus far. The
3: deadline to register semi-automatic weapons is January 1st, but only about 4,000 people have registered some 7,800 guns with the state police as of Monday. That's out of about 2.4 million licensed gun owners in the state though not all have the type that need to be registered. The law, which took effect earlier this year, prohibits the sale and possession of high-powered guns like the AR-15, but current owners can keep their guns as long as they are registered. Some owners have called the law vague, unconstitutional, and say they will not abide. I'm Mawa Iqbal.
0: A Bishop Hill nonprofit organization says there are major concerns about the condition of state-owned historic buildings at the Western Illinois site. Jane Carlson tells us what the organization is trying to do about that.
6: The Preserve Bishop Hill Corporation was founded a couple years ago. Its mission is to support the state's presence in town and come up with ideas for alternative revenue streams to fund restoration of state-owned buildings like the Colony Church.
5: What you see is rotting clapboard siding, sills that are rotten, windows that are falling, uh, general just a depressed look.
6: That's Courtney Stone, who founded the nonprofit after circulating an online petition that called attention to the deferred maintenance in the village. Bishop Hill was founded in 1846 by Swedish immigrants as a utopian community. Today it's a community of under 150 that depends heavily on tourism. And Stone says there's a clear difference between the state-owned historic sites in Bishop Hill and those managed by other organizations.
5: Bishop Hill is square, but this is a ribbon going from north to south, bisecting the entire town. You can't go anywhere without seeing or walking through state property. That affects tourism. People see that, and when they don't see a town looking prosperous, they question whether they should go back.
6: The state-owned properties are managed as the Bishop Hill State Historic Site under the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency, which is part of the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. And there's an estimated billion dollars in deferred maintenance for historic sites and parks across the state. Stone says his organization is coordinating with lawmakers and DNR administration to make restoration efforts in Bishop Hill a reality.
5: It was very clear to me the way into all this would be to create relationships, recreate them, reaffirm them so
0: that they don't forget who we are.
6: The Preserve Bishop Hill Corporation also aims to support programming in town. I'm Jane Carlson.
0: Illinois devoted $25 million worth of federal COVID relief money on high-impact tutoring, The federal funding runs out next year. Peter Medlin wanted to figure out how big of an impact that program has had. He has this report.
2: Melissa Sago is the principal at Lincoln-Douglas Elementary in Freeport. And she remembers looking at student academic data last fall and seeing her students, the majority of whom are low-income, struggling. For my school, we were at a sense of crisis. She felt a sense of urgency. So when she found out their school qualified to participate in the Illinois tutoring initiative, they jumped at the chance and she wanted to lead by example. Sago recruited teachers and paraprofessionals to sign up as tutors and started tutoring students herself. From December through the spring, they tutored about 16 students in math after school. But what makes this tutoring high impact? Well, it's a few things. They have to meet multiple times per week, and they have to be in groups of three or fewer students. If you could tutor one-on-one, even better. Sago says the small group format also allows her to build stronger relationships with the students she's tutoring teachers just don't get much one-on-one time with their students let alone the principal and she says they can already see the academic impact of the illinois tutoring initiative this year lincoln douglas students math scores grew over 12 percent relative to other students in the state and that's compared to the average state growth which was about flat
7: most of our students that come to our after-school tutoring program are our students of lower income And they actually had better growth than our all students' populations.
2: That's true. Low-income Lincoln-Douglas student growth scores jumped 18% this year. Now they're tutoring nearly 40 kids with a wait list for more. And the high-impact tutoring appears to be helping students statewide, too. According to state data, 75% of students who took part in the Illinois Tutoring Initiative during the last school year achieved expected or more-than-expected reading growth. And for students tutored in math, it was 80%. Christy Borders is the executive director of the Illinois Tutoring Initiative, and she says the vast majority of students also self-reported that they were really confident in the material and enjoyed the experience. The program really worked for schools like Lincoln-Douglas, but only a fraction of eligible Illinois school districts have been able to take advantage of the program. The state identified and prioritized school districts based on a few factors, like the concentration of low-income students, funding, and students who faced a, quote, disproportionate COVID-19 impact, including lost in-person instructional time. And of the 290 Illinois school districts initially identified, Only 20%, 59 districts, utilized the program last year. This year, it's up to a quarter of districts. But why didn't many school districts take advantage of the $25 million project? Borders says there were challenges getting schools on board.
6: A lot of our schools in Illinois have already put tutoring in place. And so they they were already working with one tutoring program
2: and maybe it was just too much to take something else on. There were also scheduling and transportation issues at some schools. And those were barriers even for schools that did participate. Students attended the tutoring 60 percent of the time last year. In the Northern Illinois region, 11 out of 33 identified districts are receiving tutoring, including the kids at Lincoln-Douglas. Scott Fisher is the superintendent of the South Beloit Community Unit School District. His district was identified for the tutoring initiative and signed up to participate last fall. They had a local tutoring program and put it on the back burner to focus on the tutoring initiative, but... Fisher says last fall, the initiative couldn't deliver on what they promised. He says they were told they'd get 25 to 30 tutors, but ended up with less than four. And after about a month and a half, they dropped out of it and went back to their old tutoring program. He says they just couldn't wait any longer to start tutoring their students. In a statement to WNIJ, Fisher said, quote, We were excited, but I've got to tell you, there was some disappointment with how it went. The Illinois tutoring initiative is supported through federal COVID relief funds known as ESSER, and those funds have to be allocated by September of next year. Right now, over $16.5 million of the project's $25 million has yet to be spent. Border says they have underspent so far, but the goal is to continue scaling, adding more tutors, reaching more students and spending as much as they have remaining. As of now, they're prepared to tutor students through this school year and into next summer. She's also hoping the funding deadline gets delayed and they'll be able to keep going beyond the summer. If not, she says they don't completely know if leftover unspent federal aid will just go back to the federal government.
6: What I continue to say to everyone all the
2: time is as long as those dollars are available, we will provide tutoring in as many places as we possibly can. At schools like Lincoln-Douglas, Melissa Sago says they're more than happy to participate as long as the program will be around. She says anyway, to get more one-on-one support, especially when it doesn't cost them anything, is a big win for her students. I'm Peter Mudlin.
0: Still to come on Statewide, we'll take a look at the past, present, and future of shopping malls. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. This winter marks the last stage for one of the most impactful inventions at the University of Illinois in recent years, a saliva-based test for COVID-19. It evolved from a way to keep the university open into Shield T3, a company with global reach. At its peak, it had over 170 full time staff and contractors, but it will close at the end of the year. U of I Associate Professor of Epidemiology Becky Smith was one of the first members of the saliva test team, and reporter Emily Hayes spoke to her about what she learned.
8: So it's been two and a half years since the SHIELD saliva test received emergency youth authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. What do you see as the impact of the SHIELD test during that time? We
3: needed testing as fast as we could, and we needed the, to get the results quickly. And so this was one of the first ways that we could do that before the antigen tests were developed, before everybody could have the tests at home. This this was the way that we we were getting that done. And the fact that we could do it at scale at the universities across the state, but also in the schools, also in a lot of businesses that really helped Illinois get back on its feet and get going again, and and places outside of Illinois as well.
8: And you have done research specifically on how effective this was modeling the trajectory at the University of Illinois versus other universities. Can you talk about that a little?
3: We actually, uh, we have a, a paper Hopefully, under review right now, it's uh, in submission at least uh, to look at the comparison of how we use the test at Illinois versus how Purdue did. And Purdue was using a test, but not as frequently and not as much. And we definitely prevented more cases at Illinois simply because we had more testing going on. And so we were finding cases earlier and getting them isolated earlier. So, all of the research we've done have has pointed to this test being really important for decreasing the number of cases, the amount of infection going on at UIUC.
8: What do you feel like you learned from working with the test this whole time that would be helpful for the next public health crisis?
3: I'd say the number one thing that we learned is that as important as the test was, as as game-changing as it was, you cannot tech your way out of a problem. A, A problem that has its origins in human communication and human interactions cannot be solved technologically. We have to actually involve the social sciences. We have to think about human behavior and we have to communicate better. So that's not anything to do with the test, but it's it was really important finding is that we had the best technological solution, I'd say, of any university in the country. We still had outbreaks because of human behavior.
8: Can you talk a little bit about what that human behavior actually looked like and how you could potentially prevent it?
3: A lot of our problem on campus was that students wanted their college experience. And so a little bit more thinking about how do we provide the college experience in a safer way? And we did start eventually doing that of messaging. Here's how you can make some of these traditional college experiences like parties, like tailgating, safer.
8: So what's next for the S.H.I.E.L.D. team? What are you focusing on now?
3: Uh, uh, most of the S.H.I.E.L.D. team is back to their own research. I was the only one working in infectious disease control before this. So I I don't get to see them very much. Uh, most of them are back to their typical research, which is not in infectious diseases. My team is still working on COVID a little, uh, but where it's more analyzing data, and thinking about making plans. And there's a group of us who are actually writing a book on how K-12 and public health worked together to understand and respond to COVID uh, as an example of how K-12 and public health can be partners in um, crisis mode.
8: Becky Smith is an epidemiologist at U of I and a main developer of the university's saliva-based test. Thank you so much for talking with us. Of course. Thank you. I'm Emily Hayes.
0: With the holiday shopping season now underway, how many of you plan to visit a mall? Once a trendy and bustling destination for shoppers, malls have become less busy. Some have even closed. To discuss the evolution of the shopping mall and the trend of multi-use spaces is the architecture critic Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Cole Encore spoke with her.
4: There's various factors, and everyone kind of points to Either the rise of like online shopping or how the pandemic um, impacted malls and added to the decline. So, what are some of the actual factors we see at play and how were they, uh, how did they get us to this point?
9: I started working on my mall book in 2019. So, a lot of the people that I was talking to about the trajectory were really more familiar with the pre pandemic mall history. And what they all told me, really universally, was that the pandemic didn't change the factors that were affecting the mall economy, but accelerated them. So the pandemic didn't really add new headwinds to the malls, but it made some of the forces that were already at work happen faster because people weren't going, so um, bankruptcies, et cetera, were accelerated. Now, in terms of the factors that were already affecting the kind of growth potential for malls, let's say, before 2020, um, there are really three factors. Um, Internet shopping is actually only one of them since kind of the rise of internet shopping. In the early 2000s, everyone had been saying that it was going to kill bricks and mortar retail. But in fact, before 2020, online shopping uh, only was about 15% of the retail market. And that zoomed up to, like, the mid-30s, let's say 32%, 35% during the pandemic. But it already has started going back down. During uh, the pandemic, you know, everyone, like, moved a lot of their shopping online. But as soon as they had a choice to go and shop in stores again, a lot of people went back to that because they realized that there are a lot of things that online shopping really aren't good for. One of the other factors going against malls was really just that the United States is over-malled. We have way, way more shopping square footage per person than other developed nations. So the retail market was already really top-heavy. So as soon as people started shopping less for various income-related reasons, malls really had a hard time and started competing with each other for that market. And I'd say the third factor is really income inequality, and the demise of the department store. Um, You know, when we say that department stores are the anchors for malls, there's actually like a financial rationale to that. Most malls need two department stores at minimum to sign on before they can be developed. And so when those anchors go down, it creates this big void and lack of draw for that mall. And department stores are really hammered by the... 2007 recession because people began shopping more at discount stores and big box retailers than at kind of the lower end department stores like JCPenney and Sears. So what successful malls have had to do is think of other things to do with those anchors. And a lot of malls were unsuccessful of that. And so the bankruptcies of these various department store chains also really took malls down.
4: And that actually kind of ties in really nice to my next question of, you know, we're seeing so many Anchor stores either leave or just completely, you know, go bankrupt and close all their locations. Um, But malls, of course, are still around. So what does kind of the current situation look like?
9: You know, many malls are going to go out of business, but there is still um, an echelon of malls that is currently successful and can go on being successful Um, But the big trick is to replace those anchors and replace those department stores, because I actually think department stores are not coming back. Um, That's just not a way that like millennials and Gen Z are dying to shop. And I think they're much more attracted to individual brands and individual boutiques at this point, and department stores have lost their cachet. So I think the trick for malls is as quickly as possible figuring out other um, uses for those big box spaces at the end of the malls and other things that are going to be draws for people. The, the answer to that is really kind of multifold, and it has to do with the larger direction for malls and retail, which is that um, people are moving away in a lot of cases from kind of closed shopping and towards more food, entertainment, and community uses. Your former department store can become a church. It can become a medical facility. It can become a trampoline park. It can become a higher-end food hall. And all of those things will bring people back to the mall, but it's a very different mindset than just getting a department store chain to go into that box.
4: 2020 was probably the most up-to-date report that was you know, regularly around. Um, by the National Association of Realtors, and they said over 30% of the time, malls are still trying to fill vacant spots with other retail uses, um, and we're only seeing dual or multi-use, whether it be community space, office space, what have you, around like 16% of the time. Is the claim of malls trying to become dual or multi-use really accurate then?
9: From what I'm seeing, and this is more anecdotal, The successful mall repositionings are like going in a different direction, are going against clothing retail and into kind of a more expansive idea of like what a draw can be. I don't see department stores and really large scale retail like being successful. And so I think it's more a factor of the kind of conservatism of some real estate markets and marketers where they want to keep doing the same thing even if it's not working the larger trends that we see in the suburbs which are people wanting more walkable communities people working more for home from home so even residential areas are just kind of organically becoming more mixed use all of that to me points to the need for malls to become more mixed use and for people really to want to see them as more like town centers than as isolated retail environments
4: at our current local mall here, the um, state EPA is actually moving their offices into the old Sears, and, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that, from, you know, sizeless space to actually being able to have plenty of parking. Do you think, aside from, like, traditional dealer multi-use, that there is this avenue for government to be able to get involved and be a part of that conversation and discussion?
9: I do. I absolutely do. And I see, you know, government offices as being more akin to medical facilities that have moved into malls, which um, they've been doing for the past 15 or so years. So, yeah, it comes down to what, like, what is a part of a city that is growing, that does need more space and does need convenient parking in a place that everyone knows how to get to. And, you know, outpatient medical facilities are something like that. And I think government offices are also something like that. The great thing about both of those uses is there are synergies with the traditional aspects of a mall. In both places, you're often waiting around. And wouldn't you like to be able to get lunch on site or go to a drugstore on site or do a little shopping like while you're waiting for your paperwork to come back, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also good for the employees to have a place that they can exit the office and you know, go get lunch, walk around, you know, one of the things that I point out in my book is that Victor Bruin, the father of the shopping mall, always intended malls to have some community facilities. And if you look at the floor plans of a lot of the early malls, you know, late 50s, early 60s, they may have a worship space or they may have um, a DMV or other small-scale office in them. So that was part of the DNA of the mall from the beginning.
0: That's architecture critic and author Alexandra Lang discussing the past, present, and future of shopping malls. Black women are disproportionately burdened by student debt. One young woman in Chicago is doing everything she can to avoid becoming part of that statistic. Lisa Phillip joined her for lunch outside her office and has this story.
10: 30-year-old Brianna Kid is chowing down on some delicious-looking homemade pasta. It's like a spinach linguine, and
7: then I took a bunch of multicolored peppers.
10: I ask if she's always known how to cook. No, but that's why you have the Internet. (laughs) Now she cooks most days, an effort to save money. Brianna graduated college in 2015 with a bachelor's degree in psychology and $42,000 in student debt. She started working and making loan payments right away. But after three years, she realized most of it goes to interest and then barely goes to principal. She'd barely made a dent in her overall debt.
7: Panic ensued.
10: I'm saying it like I'm reading a novel. (laughs) A year after finishing college, Black women owe nearly $39,000 on average in student debt. That's more than any other demographic, according to the Education Trust, a nonprofit that advocates for education equity. And because of gender and racial pay gaps, college-educated Black women like Brianna often earn much less than their peers. The racial wealth gap they face is even bigger. All of this means they have a harder time paying back their loans.
7: When it comes to this aspect of my life with these student loans, I refuse to be the statistic. I want to be the outlier, and I will be that.
10: Five years ago, in a little notebook, Brianna wrote down how much she needed to earn to pay off her loans as quickly as possible. I started working two jobs to try to make
7: these ends meet and also to be able to save. She moved in with her dad. I don't have my own house. I don't have my own apartment, but I don't have to pay for rent and
10: utilities all by myself. She cut back on eating out, even at Potbelly's, her absolute favorite spot. Then, when the pandemic started, Brianna saw an opportunity. Interest was paused. Most people stopped making payments, but Brianna doubled down.
7: Pay a lump sum like two grand on another one, just knock another one out, knock another one out.
10: All that money went directly toward her loan principles. She brought her balance from $37,000 at the start of the pandemic to $10,000 as of early October when the payment pause ended. Brianna recognizes not many are in the position to do what she did no matter how badly they may want to. My story isn't a one-size-fits-all for everyone. She still works two jobs as a claims adjuster and an insurance agent. So when she's finished working her nine-to-five, she'll go home and work some more, and she still lives with her dad. But she's so close to being debt-free. With some help from local WBEZ listeners, she's now on track to pay off all her student loans in 12 months or less. I can't wait. I'm so excited to be done with this,
7: because then I get to start my life. I get to have my life back.
10: Brianna dreams of buying a house with enough kitchen counter space to cook meals with her favorite spices, smoked paprika and cumin. And she wants two bathrooms.
7: I'm tired of waiting for someone who's already in the one bathroom, and I'm talking about full. Well, I guess I could have a half. No, give me two full bathrooms.
10: And she wants a two-car garage and a grassy yard. Rihanna thinks she can start saving up for a down payment after her debt is gone. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Corian-Philip in Chicago.
0: More to come on Statewide. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. WSIU Radio's commentator Pete Peterson is known for being a retired English professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale and, of course, for his long-running reading baseball essays and commentaries. But in his younger years, Pete had a job, pumping gas, cleaning windshields, and checking oil at a full-service gas station, stations that rarely exist throughout the country these days.
11: I recently discovered that pumping gas, my first job out of high school, is like the dodo bird facing extinction. Only two states, Oregon and New Jersey, mandate full-service gas stations, and the Oregon legislature recently passed a bill Reducing full-service stations to half of the state's gas stations.
0: I think it's hard to find people who really want to pump gas these days, um, and I get it. It's 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 not the sexiest job, but it's you know it's it's needed. It's it's vital. It helps our. Gas stations thrive, and and, um, it helps the small business community thrive. But yeah, it's it's certainly a challenge, and it's certainly a cost for for fuel retailers, especially as the minimum wage goes up.
11: When I graduated from high school in 1956 at the age of 17, I'd given no thought to a career beyond playing ball for my hometown Pittsburgh Pirates. But when I didn't play well enough in my senior year, To attract a bird dog or a scout, I had, as my mother kept reminding me, to find a job. That fall, when other kids were headed back to school and I was still bumming around, my mother told my father, who was working at a local golf station as a mechanic, called a grease monkey in those days, to see if he could get our do-nothing son a job. I'd been around gas stations all my life because that was how my father earned a living but horsing around gas pumps and grease racks as a kid hadn't prepared me for working in a gas station. On my first morning on the job, after climbing into an ill-fitting, oil-smelling golf coverall, I was told that my main job, beside keeping the crapper clean, was to wait on customers at the gas island. My instructions were to greet each customer who was paying 25 cents a gallon for golf regular with a smile and asked if I could fill her up with no knocks or Crest Gulf's premium gasolines. I was so miserable, however, that every time a car pulled into the station, I dragged myself to the island, glowered in silence at the driver, and hoped he only wanted a buck or two of regular. I hated to fill her up because in those days, cars had no shut-off valve in the gas tanks. If I didn't pay attention, and I seldom did, the tank would fill up and shoot gas up the line. Before I could stop pumping, the gas would overflow and spill down the back bumper or tail of the car, not to mention soaking my shoes and socks and staining the driveway. After I finished pumping gas, I was supposed to ask the driver if I could check the oil and clean the windshield, but I made a point of ignoring the dirty windshield and forgetting about the oil. If the poor driver was foolish enough to ask me to clean his windshield, He had to sit there in dismay and watch me use a special golf spray that transformed the soot from Pittsburgh steel mills into an oily film. If the driver had the nerve to remind me to check the oil after I smeared his windshield, I fumbled with the hood release, puzzled over the location of the dipstick, then tried, usually without success, to read the level of the oil gauge. Usually I told the driver the oil looks okay no matter what the oil gauge read, took the money, watched the car with its dripping gas stain wheel out of the gas station looking as if it had just peed itself when i turned 18 in the spring of 1957 i left my dollar an hour job at the gas station for a variety of jobs where i made little more money but was just as miserable for the next few years i worked or reluctantly worked at factories mills and warehouses out of sheer boredom and despair i even tried to join the navy but was rejected when I couldn't straight out my left arm because I shattered my elbow playing high school football. I ended up working at Gimbel's department store in downtown Pittsburgh as a stock boy until I finally realized that I was going nowhere with my life and decided to apply to college. That turned out to be the best decision I'd made to that point in my misbegotten life. At the age of 22, five years out of high school, I enrolled at Edinburgh a small state college in Northwestern, Pennsylvania. For the next four years, I read literary giants from Chaucer to James Joyce, earned a teaching certificate, and after earning advanced degrees, went on to teach the world's greatest literature for the next four decades. I was also lucky enough to marry the prettiest girl at Edinburgh. When our kids saw my wedding pictures, they wondered how a funny looking guy like me convinced Anita to marry me. I told them, I've always been able to make her laugh.
0: Pete Peterson is a commentator with WSIU Radio. President Kennedy's motorcade, a rifle seen from above. It's not Dallas, 1963. It was the scene in Springfield a year earlier. JFK made a visit to the capital city, and for the most part, it went off as planned. But an incident occurred in the downtown area involving two young men. What happened back then? A former reporter with the State Journal Register, Crystal Thomas, wrote about it, and in 2018, we spoke with her. As we recently marked 60 years since John F. Kennedy's assassination, we revisit our conversation. Crystal, thanks for being with us, and let's start by explaining Kennedy's visit to Springfield. What was his agenda here?
12: Well, so Kennedy was visiting Springfield as a part of a stop during a campaign tour. Um, The midterms were in a month, and he was uh, in Springfield to stump for Democratic candidates, um, namely Representative Sidney Yates. He was here to give a rousing speech to a crowd of thousands of people in Springfield urging them to vote for his candidates.
0: So he comes to Springfield and a motorcade ensues once he leaves uh, the plane at the airport. How did this come to your attention? How did you find out that there was something that occurred during that motorcade?
12: Well, so on the 55th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's actual assassination, which was last week, the Washington Post ran an article by uh, Professor Stephen Knott. This professor actually got these declassified documents from the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston that explain this incident. He was the one who found uh, that this incident actually happened. Uh, We didn't know about it for so many years because it was sitting in that document that was still classified until two years ago.
0: And your newspaper at the time just had a brief blurb that something had occurred.
12: Well, I wouldn't even call it a blurb because uh, it was two lines on page seven. It was part of, it wasn't even part of the main story. It was um, part of a story called Kennedy Sidelights that was explaining kind of the police presence it took to protect uh, President Kennedy and to secure the motorcade, and, and the two lines um, didn't talk about how uh, there was a rifle pointing at President Kennedy at one point in the motorcade. It, all it said was that two youths were arrested and that they were held for secret service. There was no follow-up uh, and no explanation for why they were arrested.
0: So talk about the this rifle itself, and, and somebody, of course, witnessed this. Do we know who saw it, and uh, what did they say? What, what did they describe seeing? And, uh, and of course, what did the investigation turn up?
12: All we know about this incident so far is what was found in that biweekly report that was declassified uh, two years ago. The report is about Uh, It's about 20 pages, but the brief about the motorcade is about a paragraph, and what it says is that there were two young men. They um, were in a second story floor of a building somewhere downtown, and as the motorcade passed by that building, once it left, an Illinois Department of Public Safety employee saw a rifle and a scope sticking out the window, And um, from there on, uh, local police went and got the two youths, arrested them, and brought them to Secret Service. They were questioned by Secret Service. They admitted that they did stick the rifle out the window at the presidential motorcade. But their explanation for doing so was that they wanted to see if they can see the president through the scope of the rifle so that when he came back through the motorcade 30 minutes later, they could see him better. They weren't prosecuted. They were, however, um, their rifle and the ammunition was
0: seized. We have not heard about this locally, at least, uh, until this recent incident. So there was never any follow-up that we could tell. No information was given by the police or the Secret Service to the local media.
12: Not to the local media. And it's it's pretty curious because it, I couldn't find anything in any of the Illinois State Journal's pages Um, following the incident. There's nothing about it, according to the declassification archivist at the JFK uh, Library in any of the documents she's looked at. Um, There also isn't a trace of it in Springfield lore, which is what I kind of find the most interesting part, because there were locals who were involved in that arrest. There were police, there were sheriff's deputies, things like that. Um, maybe people who are on that motorcade route that saw something and yet somehow this, this incident didn't trickle down to some kind of rumor or some kind of um, uh, far-fetched story that people tell their grandkids.
0: We're talking with Crystal Thomas, a reporter for Springfield State Journal Register, and we're talking about JFK's 1962 visit to Springfield. Some new information that's come out regarding an incident during the motorcade in which a rifle was apparently pointed at the president. When We mentioned uh, two youths, I believe 16 and 20 years old, were taken into custody, eventually not charged with this. You were able to track down at least one of these people.
12: Yes, he actually still lives in the area. Um... He was 16 at the time, but now obviously he's much older. I paid a visit to his house on Saturday because I couldn't track down a number for him and I knocked on his door. Um, he opened his door, his uh, small dog came out and uh, we chatted for a bit. I, there's no way really to uh, begin the conversation about whether you tried to assassinate a president 56 years ago, so I mostly just asked the question showed him the brief Um, he didn't really want to talk about it Uh, so um, what you see in the paper is pretty much uh, everything he told me Um, that you know stories right there in the uh, in the brief and um, he grabbed his mail and then closed the door
0: and you did not identify him because he was never charged with any crime
12: no he was never charged uh, Secret Service declined prosecution We took a look at his uh, local criminal records to see if that gave any kind of indication one way or the other um, that would talk to his motivation about the incident. And it didn't. There was nothing. He's pretty clean when it came to uh, his record. And so we just decided not to uh, name him, although he is named in the brief.
0: Well, it's interesting to me, this incident, even though we can't prove that there was any intent to harm President Kennedy at the time, it sort of foreshadows the events in Dallas just a little more than a year later. Apparently, though, it did nothing to stop the president from riding in an open motorcade, or at least that we're aware of, that uh, you know, whether the Secret Service started becoming more concerned because of this one incident, were they, were they realizing that, that he was at much more risk in something like an open motorcade? It just seems interesting to me, the, the close proximity of this to the actual assassination.
12: Yeah, the uh, actual assassination was 13 months after the Springfield incident. And there are a lot of similarities. Um, President Kennedy uh, in Dallas was in an open top limousine, um, similar to how he was in Springfield. Um, you know, he was shot from above. So there were a lot of similar similarities between the two trips um, and one thing we can't know um, at this point was what kind of conversations the Secret Service had uh, or President Kennedy had after this uh, incident in Springfield. Um, if there were any conversations, you know, they're not in records that we can see or have been de- declassified. Um, but I will say that one thing to keep in mind is that President Kennedy himself didn't enjoy bulletproof glass. He wanted to be out in the open. And uh, one of his most infamous quotes was, you know, if I'm paraphrasing right now, but if someone wanted to kill a president, they would find a way to do so. So um, whether they took lessons from this Springfield incident or not, there's no way of knowing if, if that trigger had been pulled in Springfield, if something had more aggressive had happened in Springfield, um, whether that would have prevented Dallas.
0: That's Crystal Thomas, a former reporter with the State Journal Register. And we talked with her in 2018 about JFK's visit to Springfield, which had an eerie similarity to his trip in Dallas when he was assassinated. We have more on that story. There's a link at our show page. That's all the time we have for Statewide this week. We thank you for being with us and hope you'll join us again next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find our shows at the station's website and at nprillinois.org. And you can listen to our episodes where you get your podcasts or through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.